This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. And I am here with my incredible co-host, Jeff Cohen. Hello, Len. How are you? Oh, man. You know what, Jeff? I can't go two weeks without doing a show with you. I know. Right? It's too long. Bonus episode, baby. Bonus baby. But bonus babies. We're not going to apologize, first of all, for the content you're about to hear. It's great content. But what we're not going to apologize for is the fact that we taped this, we recorded this during the pandemic. Well, we're in the pandemic, but during the pandemic baseball season. Right. So some of what you're going to hear, very little bit of what you're going to hear in this bonus episode. Bonus, baby. Doesn't apply as much because it it happened already, but very little, very little. Still worth listening to. Oh. Who do we have? We have Brian Greca, or maybe I'm saying, I don't know, maybe I'm saying his wrong, name wrong. Is it Greca, Greca? All I know is he's the pit master for Milt's Barbecue for the Perplexed, and that is in Chicago, Illinois. And, yes. Jeff, yes. joining Brian, who else do we have? We have Bob Weckler, who is part of the JewishBaseballMuseum.com. And he did write a book on Jewish baseball players, but this is really more, more toward the website and the Jewish Baseball Museum. Now, if, if, it's, if it's online, would he still, he's, he's the curator, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The museum curator. So we've right. got a curator, we've got a pit master, and we have a bonus, and I do say a bonus episode. Yes. You know, this is like our early holiday present to our listeners because I, I think that there's something there's definitely something for everyone in this episode there's barbecue talk there's baseball talk and, and Len, let's just point out that it's really one big interview this is really a baseball and barbecue interview yeah yeah we go from baseball to barbecue to baseball to baseball to barbecue to barbecue to baseball it's like uh, we just go back and forth. This is not two separate interviews. These are both, they're, they're on the same call. Same we're we're talking to these guys. Yeah, same one. This is it. 
bonus episode 77. It's it's one episode before we hit our three year anniversary special. Yes. Yeah. This is our our anniversary present to our fans, our right. holiday gift, right? Absolutely. And if anybody wants to get in touch with us, please give us a call at 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Interact with us on our Facebook page. Tweet us. We're at baseballandbbq. We have an Instagram account, baseballandbarbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. And check us out on our website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And one last request, rate and review us. All right. Hope you're going to enjoy the bonus content. Without further ado, Bob Wexler is a research director of Jewish Major Leaguers, Inc., a a contributor to the JewishBaseballMuseum.com, a member of the Advisory Committee of Jewish Sports Heritage. He's also the author of Day by Day in Jewish Sports History and a Jewish Baseball Card Book. Chef Brian Greca has has always considered his food his passion. From an early age, he was focused on providing eclectic cuisine to anyone who would dare try his creations. Growing up in central Arkansas, he adopted a love for soulful barbecue, which has taken him to his current foray at Milt's Barbecue for the Perplexed. After manning the helm at Milt's as an executive chef for five years, he took on the additional role of general manager in January 2018. And as of January 2020, Jeff Ryan has also become part owner of the restaurant. And he did the baseball too. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Rob and Brian. Thanks for having us. Welcome, guys. So guys, I was approving the internet one day and then Google Jewish Baseball, and lo and behold, I come across this JewishBaseballMuseum.com. And I've been really a, a loving the site. I always go on it once in a while. I, I check out some, some players, check out the bios, check out the artifacts. So Bob, why don't you tell us uh, about how this JewishBaseballMuseum.com got started? Okay, well, uh, I think it was 2016, and Jeff Ader, who was, the, I guess, co-owner now of Mills Barbecue for the Plex in Chicago, uh, had this idea to create a, a Jewish baseball museum. Originally, it was supposed to be online. It was going to have a physical museum and a traveling museum. So we got it up and running. I helped, I, I helped him get the thing started online, and then he changed his mind about the physical and the uh, traveling museum. So it's a site where we, we uh, celebrate every Jewish major league player who's played in at least one major league game. So it's got bios, players' cards, baseball cards, uh, statistics, articles, videos, pictures of artifacts. There's a section on this day in Jewish baseball history, and it's just a lot of fun to go and find out who the Jewish players are. Certainly is. Rob, so I, I went on the site, and it's it's like going down a rabbit hole. You just, you know, you're clicking on everything. I'm watching the videos from former Major League Commissioner, you know, Bud Selig, talking about how he hopes that one day there's uh, an Israeli uh, player in the leagues to seeing people talk about Sandy Koufax to this is where you got me. I start watching. It was the 1965 World Series. It was the Twins against the Dodgers. Jim Cott is pitching, by the way, Jeff, on two days rest against Sandy Koufax. It was game seven. And I'm watching and I'm listening and, and they're showing the people in the dugout. And 
and and most of the videos up to this point are not that long and they've got the twins announcer who's going to do four and a half innings and they've got Vince Scully who's going to do four and a half innings and and I keep watching and it's going on and on and I'm, I'm they start the game and I'm watching it like wait a second what's going on it's the whole game <laughs> and it was great I didn't watch the whole thing but it was over two hours so if you're looking for the 1965 game seven of the World Series go to go to Jewish baseball because it, it was fantastic I think my favorite video in there is uh, Mr. Red the horse hitting a whole mile for Sandy Koufax <laughs> Mr. Red was Jewish I think <laughs> And Brian, tell us about your involvement with Jewish Baseball Museum and your restaurant, Milk's Barbecue for the Perplex, which is a very interesting name. Um, sure. So at the restaurant, well, thank you about the name. That was all Jeff's idea. The restaurant has always had a little bit of a baseball theme. We actually have uh, Jeff's collection of Sandy Koufax cards and his King Greenberg cards, which I can show you guys in a little bit. It's a few feet from me. Uh, they're really cool stuff. So I've, I've been staring at those for a few years. And then about four years ago, the space next door opened up. And if you see that Bob's wearing the t-shirt of Milt's Extra Innings, that was a uh, short-lived deli that we had. And when they scuttled the idea of having the physical Jewish baseball museum, they actually put a lot of those artifacts inside that deli. And so, again, I worked very closely staring at Hank Greenberg's bat and a game-used ball by, like, Sandy Koufax. And there was one baseball there from, like, 1903 that, you know, there was some really cool stuff. And then he talked about the uh, Mr. Ed video. Uh, so we had a scrolling video that would loop over and over and over again. It was, like, a 10-minute video, and that included the clip of uh, Mr. Ed hitting the home run off Sandy Koufax. So I got to look at that <laughs> thousands of times. <laughs> And it's a kosher restaurant, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, the restaurant at the was when we opened the second kosher barbecue restaurant in the country. And now that the other place is no longer open, we are the longest and oldest kosher restaurant in the United States. And uh, we've been doing quite well. There's a, quite a few other restaurants that have popped up over the last few years. And everyone does a great job. Uh, we're more of like a mid-scale sit down family style restaurants that's not just you know slinging brisket into paper ba- you know paper bags and stuff but uh, you know i you know i'm proud of every, everything we've done over the last few years and you know i love tasting what everyone else is doing and so we have a nice little community of uh you know kosher barbecue chefs and, and he also gets a lot of a few chicago cubs players because it's only a few blocks from wrigley field in chicago yeah um actually uh, jake arietta when uh, in 2000 and I think he started in 2015. He became a huge fan of us. And there was like a four-game run when I think he had no hitters going into the sixth inning. And he had come to Mills the day before he pitched every single game and got a rib. And so we knew he had hit his little he had his little thing going on. And he so he came in here quite a bit. And then my the my favorite little anecdote with him was that someone had randomly asked him on Twitter what his favorite thing to do on a day off was. And he said, grab some barbecue ribs at Mills and go to the beach and hang out with my kids. I'm like, yes. So I have a screenshot of that, and I keep looking at it every year when it pops up on my Facebook feed. That's great. That's great. Uh, Bob, let me get back to the uh, site for a few minutes. Uh, what I really like about the site is I like going back in baseball history, and I love, love your timeline page where you have a, a couple of decades called out, and you have the notables and memorable moments. Tell us how that all came about. Well, it was an attempt to tell the history of Jews in baseball. Uh, as you can see, there's not much 
except for Lippmann Pike, 1871 became the first Jewish major leaguer. There's not much until most of the 1930s. There's a few players here and there, a couple of good pitchers in the 1910, 1915. But it's the, the history of baseball is the history of Jews in America or any immigrant group. People came over and we, they first wave of immigration in the early 1900s, and they didn't speak the language. They were all crammed together in, in Chicago or, or New York, Lower East Side. And how do you become Americans? Baseball. So they, everybody started following baseball. There was really no place to play baseball in, in New York. It was mostly basketball and boxing, which you could play in gymnasiums. Until you started getting in the second wave of immigrants, and the kids were growing up, and then you had 1930s with Hank Greenberg and all those other players. So the timeline was important to show how how it evolved, and it's the same way, same thing with the uh, the way the the cards are set up in the uh, Jewish baseball card book. It's a history of Jews in baseball chronologically, and it's also a history of baseball cards. You can see how they evolved over the years from the early tobacco cards into the uh, gum and the and the candy cards and the tops that you have today. So the timeline is basically a, a history of Jews. Of, of America and, and Jew, Jewish immigration. I saw all the, the the artifacts on there, you know, the gloves and the and the bats and stuff. And I was wondering if there was an actual physical museum, uh, but it's not, right? It's just right. online. Then. It's just online. So where, where where are all these things? Where I, are these items? Uh, Jeff Ader probably has them in his home now. Since the uh, is that right, Brian? You know where he keeps. Yeah, them? he has he has a lot of it. He has some in storage and. Before all this started, he was actually touring around to different synagogues around the country, bringing some stuff with him and doing a little presentation. So he had a bunch of poster boards and some of his select cards and things that he wanted to take with him. But yeah, a lot of it's in storage right now, which is kind of a shame. So Brian, very interested in kosher barbecue. The meat is all obviously kosher. One of my favorite things is beef ribs. And I, the fact is that you have to make ribs like that. Well, what what type of ribs, obviously, you make so, beef ribs, so you make we, lamb? The answer to all the above is yes. We actually started when we first opened, I was using beef back ribs because that was more of a back ribs as a traditional cut. They don't have a lot of meat. They're leaner. Uh, they, they're quicker cook and they're less expensive. And we had started selling a ton of them to the point where I couldn't even keep up production. Like we could not get the product. There was a massive shortage because basically forever... For every slab of ribs, I had to, you know, someone has to buy an entire ribeye. And it got to a point where we were kind of destroying the kosher market for ribs. And they mm-hmm. told me I had to buy full ribeyes, which I couldn't do. We're not a steakhouse and we just don't sell it. So I, had, I made a switch. We switched to short ribs. And we haven't looked back. They're a much, much better product. You know, there's so much more meat. And it's, you know, it, and now I think everyone is kind of copying it. And again, there starts leading into shortages in the kosher community. But you know, over the last year or so, there's been a few different producers that have stepped up and now we're getting a lot more product. And so we haven't had any issues in a while. But yeah, so we, we smoke our short ribs. They you know take eight or so hours. I use a spice rub. A lot of chefs are very particular about what they do. You know, Some are more simple where they'll just put black pepper and paprika and not really nothing else. Uh, I, I'm a little more involved because I always like to tinker. And you know, the, the recipe has changed. It's evolved over the last few years. And, but yeah, I, you know, I love what I do. We don't, I'm very particular. I don't like to put sauce on my ribs because I think that kind of, it, it takes the choice away from the customer. And so at the restaurant, we decided we would do three house sauces on the side, you know, three that we make in house, all very different in flavor that kind of give you the barbecue that you kind of like. 
And so that's something I'm proud of and that, you know, we, I, I believe we do well. So we also do a lot of brisket. Um, I do do lamb ribs and veal ribs on specials. I've tried doing duck, but it's too expensive. And the, you know, kosher duck is extremely expensive. So I've kind of scuttled that. But uh, yeah, um, we've also, we do, I started making, you know, chilies and baked beans and all the other little barbecue accoutrement that goes with it. And we do a lot of burgers also. So we're a barbecue slash grill house, I guess. And you've crossed the line where it doesn't matter whether you are kosher or not, your restaurant is, is, is outstanding from everything I've heard that no matter if you're kosher or not, you're going to your restaurant. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, that's something that was very, uh, we were very conscious of it when we uh, came up with the original idea and the location and everything is part of that. We're in Lakeview, we're about a mile from Wrigley Field and we made a point of, you walk in, no one, you didn't know, you never know it was kosher unless you see the high prices of the beef. We, we don't like display, you know, kosher place with like big bright lights, you know, or anything, right. you know, people right, generally right. don't know. And then we get people coming in asking for, you know, pulled pork and, you know, mac and cheese. And then, then we're like, well, just so you know. <laughs> But yeah, and no one else is really doing beef ribs in Chicago. That's, I haven't found any other restaurants that do beef ribs. So especially, you know, we, we, we get a fair amount of people that, you know, from, from Muslims that will come in because they obviously can't eat pork either. So that they'll come in, get, you know, a lot of people from the community. We're definitely not in the Jewish community at all. We're very much in an eclectic, you know, East Lakeview. If you know anything about Chicago, it's, just, it's, it's like a young up and coming kind of neighborhood. So Jeff, definitely not what you consider, you know, like a Jewish central, like in Brooklyn or anything like that. So I, I don't eat red meat, but I, I really like what they do with the salmon there. Oh. <laughs> I, mean, I like the salmon a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then it's even funnier because I, I uh, stopped really eating a lot of red meat a couple years ago, too. And Jeff also stopped eating red meat for a while. So for a while, you know, it was funny. At one point, like none of the people operating the place were eating any beef. But I, I, mean, I still like it and enjoy it. I just, you know, I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob, let me ask you about the Jewish baseball players and what's the criteria of being put on the list of, of, that you have on the roster. But before you before you answer, I just wanted to there was a uh, I want to say that the myth of Rod Crew because when I looked on your list, I didn't see Rod Crew, and I always thought he was Jewish because he converted. But in fact, he did not convert. He did marry a Jewish woman, and his daughters did get bar mitzvahed, but he did not convert at all. He never completed the process, so he does not count. Right, yes. (laughs) Of course, the Hanukkah song doesn't help because he's... he's (laughs) Here's our criteria. criteria. Uh, And anybody can really... Depending where you look, everybody's got their own list, but uh, I follow the same list that the Jewish Baseball News website and Jewish Sports Review publication, we all use the same criteria, that you have to have at least one Jewish parent or or you converted. It could be either father or mother. I know Reformed counts either. So you cannot, you can't identify, you must be willing to identify as Jewish. So guys like Paul Goldschmidt and uh, Jason Kipnis, who have Jewish fathers and non-Jewish mothers, they were not raised Jewish. They don't identify as Jewish. So we don't count them. Lou Boudreau had a Jewish mother. She got divorced when he was two years old. He went to live with the father, never identified as Jewish. So it would be nice to have it all a Hall of Fame second shortstop on our list, but unfortunately we don't count him. And then the, the third criteria criterion is you can't follow another religion at the same time. So there's, there's one player who 
identifies as Messianic Jewish. So uh, a lot of people consider that Christian, so we don't put him on the list. Who was that? Dave Newhan. He was a... a oh, player. yeah. Played for the yes. Orioles for a little bit. The I mean, Orioles, he played for the Mets, too. The Mets and Phillies. Yeah. is in the Phillies farm system. He started out in the minor leagues. He was identified as Jewish, but somewhere in the major leagues, he he switched over to Messianic, and we mm. kicked him out. And talk about Ty Kelly, because he, he's interesting, because he never knew he had, he had a, a Jewish heritage. Well, he Yeah, his mother is Jewish, but he was raised uh, Catholic or Protestant. I don't know what his father is. So about a couple of years ago, in fact, Jeff Ader organized a trip of about 10 Jewish players to go to Israel. And Ty went along with his mother and just fell in love with Israel and fell in love with Judaism. He came back and said, I'm now willing to identify as Jewish. So he's, even, he's on the uh, uh, Israeli Olympic team. And in order to qualify for the Olympics, you have to be a, a, a citizen of that country. So he's dual citizenship now. He didn't have to be. Jewish during the World Baseball Classic. Yeah, the tournament because uh, you only had to have one Jewish grandparent to qualify. But for the Olympics, you have to be a citizen. So um, all these uh, American ballplayers who are on Team Israel are now dual citizens. Oh, Ty Kelly is all in on it now. Cool. Rob, is there uh, an argument? Is Sandy Koufax the greatest Jewish ballplayer ever? Well, it's either him or Hank Greenberg. You're talking about pitchers and players. Sandy was just a mediocre pitcher his first several years. He was, because he got called up in 1955. He signed as, a, they call him a bonus baby. They got, if they signed for more than $12,000, teams had to keep them on the roster the whole year. So he never got to play in the minors. And he was just kind of a mediocre pitcher for the first couple of years until he got out to L.A. And, and Jewish catcher uh, Norm Sherry worked with him and, he was unbeatable for the next five or six years. It made the best streak ever of any pitcher. Hank Greenberg had an overall great career interrupted by the army came back and still had a good career. So it's hard. You're comparing pitchers and players. Greenberg was the first significant Jewish player. Mm -hmm. And uh, Koufax affected more people who were my age. You know, I was baseball in the fifties and sixties in my, my era. Most interesting Jewish Player had to be Mo Berg, though. Mo Berg. Mm. strangest player ever. <laughs> <laughs> he was a he started out as a shortstop, played for Brooklyn. I think so, he was a pretty good hitter. He suffered a knee injury. Was never a good hitter after that. And one day, I guess he was with the White Sox, and they were down two catchers, and he volunteered to catch. And he turned it into like a fifteen or sixteen year major league career as a, as a backup catcher. But they say he he spoke seven languages and couldn't hit in any of them. <laughs> uh, and I, I guess you, you might know the story. Did you see the movie with uh, Paul Rudd? But yes. Uh, so, so a lot of these spy stories about him going on top of the the Tokyo hospital to film the skyline while, during a tour, with, along with Babe Ruth and Luke Gehrig and Lefty Grove. All these great players they bring along Mo Berg for some strange reason. We don't know if they're true or not. He kind of embellished some of them, but definitely a strange character. <laughs> Right. There's also a documentary, The Catcher Was a Spy. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely one of the more unique players, not just Jewish players, but any player in history. Brian, what kind of smoker do you use? So <laughs> we're talking about I'm just bouncing. <laughs> no, that's fine. You can you can fix everything in uh, editing. This is it. <laughs> uh oh, I gotta be careful then. So we're spoiled at the restaurant. I have a we have a 1,000-pound rotisserie smoker, 
and it's gas assist. So I can load it up, hit it with a bunch of wood at the beginning, and then you, we can let it keep rolling overnight without any maintenance or anyone overseeing it, overseeing it. And I can even set a timer so it'll go down into a holding stage that won't overcook the meat. It's, it's spectacular. It's really hard to mess up barbecue on that type of thing. Uh, you know, at home and when I'm doing competition or anything, I, um, I'll usually either use kettle or barrel smokers. Uh, I love barrel smokers because, you know, they're, they have a nice wide, lot of space to work with. Uh, they have a lot of good airflow and they're good to control heat and stuff like that. You know, uh, anything you can, you can smoke out of a filing cabinet, though. <laughs> you know, I've seen that. it, actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All you really need, you need is a box with a couple racks and an air hole in it. And <laughs> you can mm-hmm. figure out the rest. You know, you're, the, the trick is really keeping temperature control. So, Brian, you mentioned uh, competition. I don't know your background, but when you compete, are you doing, I didn't know you were a competitive barbecuer, are you doing like KCBS or um, what What competitions are you doing? Well, few and, right now it's few and far between. Everything's been canceled this year. Right. In the past, yeah, I've done a couple of K, KCBS uh, champ, uh, barbecue competitions. And you know, and for in the kosher community, they'll they'll adjust the rules a little bit because it's different categories. So I think mm-hmm. most recently, I think it's brisket, turkey, ribs. I don't recall if they had baked beans on it now. Um, there was a fourth one. There's a I forget what the fourth one is. And so yeah, so they have it's the same criterion criteria that they have uh, with any other competition. So you still you're judged on flavor, on texture, on presentation. And, you know, everybody, all the judges getting the same amount of stuff. So it's it's the same, you know, and, and the, you know, the good thing, at least in the kosher KCBS competitions, which there, I think there are like at least eight or nine of them last year around the country, is that everyone is using kosher approved equipment. So everyone's using the same kettle grills you know, you, you, and the same smokers. You, you don't have, you know, people being, bringing these amazing rigs like these gas assist rotisseries to a competition because it's a little, it's a little looser in the regular in the regular world. So at least everyone's on the same footing in that sense. And so you'll have teams competing that where, you know, they'll bring in a ringer, you know, a chef who's not Jewish, who doesn't know anything about kosher, hoping that maybe, hey, we'll get an extra edge in. But no, it's all in good fun. I mean, competitions are, you know, great, even for people that are not good at it. If you've got a couple hundred bucks to blow in a weekend, do it. It's fun, you know. People hanging out all night long. You can learn a lot too, even by making bad barbecue. You can still learn a lot, and it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Speaking, of bad barbecue, speaking of bad barbecue, I moved from Pennsylvania to North Carolina about eight years ago, and I cannot get used to the vinegar based barbecue they have down here. Oh. It just doesn't, it doesn't match up with the rest That's of the funny. country. It's, it's funny. I, I happen to love the vinegar based barbecue. <laughs> Yeah, I grew up in Arkansas, and we were very much entrenched in the uh, dry rub with the, like the vinegar dipping sauce type of uh, barbecue. So that that's really where my, my you know my bread and butter is. Oh, it's funny because you mentioned competition and and the the different levels of the the rigs. Like Jeff and I, there's not a lot of competition barbecue around here, but there will, there is a KCBS event. Of course, this year they didn't have it uh, in Staten Island, and you'll see. You know, the people come in with these, you know, with the RVs, with the huge rigs. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you've got guys who, you know, have a little pup tent with a Weber Smoky Mountain. And it's, it is really, it's just like, you're right. It's, it's such a difference. So that's nice that you have people on equal footing, at least with the equipment. Yeah, but you know, it's I always like having a challenge anyway. So yeah, I'll take my little dinky rig and still compete against the big guys. 
because it's still you know the nice. flavors are the flavors are what they are the spices are what they are you know it's the the, the only the big caveat is your temperature control so if you can get it down in a little you know whoever kettle smoker then and you're golden you know <laughs> yeah you know it, it's it's a lot of fun and you know that that's something I wish I got I had more of a chance to do you know being tied down mm-hmm. to a restaurant you know it's it's very hard to get out and know justify you know especially even with like my wife hey you know i don't ever really see you guys because i'm always at work and i'm gonna go take a three-day weekend and drink and you know make a barbecue oh and it's gonna cost 500 bucks (laughs) 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 but but if i'm lucky i get a ribbon when i come home (laughs) uh, (laughs) so which is the part where she which where's she putting her foot down is it the 500 is it you being gone for the weekend it's it's, it's the point where i I don't even bother asking anymore because i already know it's it's a a losing proposition (laughs) bob we've been len and i've been to philadelphia where greg lozinski has a barbecue concession and i know boop pal has a a barbecue concession do you know of any other stadiums that have uh, barbecue concessions in your travels I'm not sure. I haven't been to many ballparks recently. You're uh, in Baltimore, right? Are no, you in? No, I'm in uh, Durham, North Carolina. North Carolina. Okay. I grew up in. I grew up about 50 miles north of Baltimore. That was good. Ah, gotcha. Uh, then I worked in the Lehigh Valley a newspaper for 41 years. So we were covering the Phillies and the two New York teams. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm in Durham. I follow the Durham Bulls, who aren't playing this year. Right. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still a kind of an Orioles fan, but uh-huh. there's. Already, their starting pitcher is out. <laughs> They're their best starting pitcher. So, I, I'm looking for another uh, first round draft pick this year. Right, right. <laughs> you know, on your site, you have on the roster, you have the the stat page, and you have the Jewish ball players by franchise. I, I'm really surprised that my New York Mets have had more Jewish players than the Yankees. Yeah, the Yankees. The Yankees have not been good at uh, hiring ball players. In fact, a lot of those players only appeared in one or two games for the Yankees. They were. <laughs> It's interesting because back in the 20s, of course, the Yankees had Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig as a draw. And the New York Giants couldn't compete with that. So they were looking for a, a perfect – they were looking for a Jewish ball player. And they tried Andy Cohen, a second baseman who was okay for a while. It didn't work out. And they had a guy in their minor league system down at Class A named Moe Solomon, who's known as the rabbi of SWAT. Because he had 49 home runs one year, led all minor league baseball in the batting average – and they called off for the last two games of the season. The Giants had qualified for the World Series. They put him in, he went three for eight. But he, he was a terrible fielder. He would have been a perfect DH. And John McGraw wanted him to sit on the bench for the World Series, and he wouldn't get paid. And he said, well, I'm not going to play. I'm not going to get paid. I'm going to play semi-pro football where I can get paid. So he never called him back again. So the New York, the, the Giants and the Dodgers are always looking for Jewish ballplayers, but the Yankees never really were very interested. Their first... That was Phil Cooney, who played for the New York Highlanders for one game back around 1913. And, yeah, it's interesting because the Mets have been around for 50 years less than the Yankees, and they've actually got more. The Chicago White Sox are the most Jewish players. Yeah, I see that. Followed by the the Orioles-St. Louis Browns franchise, and I think Detroit might be third. Yeah, San Francisco and Detroit. I guess San Francisco slash New York. Yeah. It's an interesting list. I, I think right now the, 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 the best Jewish player, I guess, right now in the league, it, I guess between Brian Braun and Jack Peterson, is that fair Alex to say? Bregman. Alex Bregman. Alex Bregman, right. Alex yes. Bregman, right. And the MVP voting last year. Yeah. You know, Jeff, as Mets fans, it's nice that we beat the Yankees in something. Exactly. 
<laughs> Yay! There's a few who play for both teams, like Elliot Maddox, who converted right. to Judaism, play for both uh, Yankees and the Mets. Mike Davis, Mike Davis too. Davis also, yeah, yeah. But you're right. The and of course, the first DH, Ron Bloomberg. Ron Bloomberg was Jewish, right? First yeah, DH. like the Yankees and White Sox. Yeah, they had Ken Holtzman for a little while, but Billy Martin didn't like to use him for some reason. And Kevin Euclid was, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't think he was Jewish uh, because of his name, but he actually. Uh, God of walks, they call him, but yeah. God of walks, right, exactly. Yeah, he, he played very briefly with the Yankees before he went to Japan to finish his career. Hey, Brian, who's the most, who would you say is the most famous person that's walked in? I know this is, well, could be baseball related, that's walked into your to your barbecue place, to, to Milt's. Randomly walked in or Jeff invited? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I didn't think of that. Not random. It was random. Okay, random, I would say probably Arietta. Well, we had a few other uh, Cubs players come in, and honestly, most people who are quote-unquote famous probably don't tell us. You know, it, I know we've had people covering the games, you know, sportscasters, people that work in baseball come in, but they usually don't announce themselves, and, you know, unless with a we notice it on a credit card or something. And at that point, you know, we're not going to make a big deal about it. How, how long have you been open for? Uh, we opened years. in January, 2013. And yeah, we just a little over seven and a half years going strong. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah barbecue, barbecue has uh, definitely become, it, it's, it's growing. It's definitely uh, restaurants are opening more and more. It's and interesting. It's, it's a, it, it's a, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because it's a lot of ways it used to be like a poor man's food. The idea of having brisket was the reason Jews are still into brisket is because it was a cheap cut that wasn't, was hard to cook. It didn't really taste very good because people didn't know how to prepare it. So all these cheap cuts, which really are the smoking and braising cuts were kind of left over, you know, for people like us. And then, you know, we turn it into something that, Hey, this can be pretty good. And now, you know, since there's such a demand for it, the prices have been skyrocketing. But, you know, it, it, you know, if you look at the history of, you know, Jews and brisket, it's uh, actually quite fascinating that now it's, uh, it's like a staple in, you know, American diet, really. And it's, it, it's, it, it screams America. And we're like, no, this is a Jewish food, guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you say is your average, uh, when you're cooking briskets, uh, how, how many briskets do you cook a day, would you say? Well, before COVID started derailing everything, um, we, we, we would right. probably do like six full packers a night unless we were going into like a convention or had some catering. And then sometimes I'll put in upwards of a dozen, which I, you know, we'll, we'll do the, the you know, full packers. We'll trim them down to like a quarter inch uh, fat cap on top. And sometimes I'll take some of that fat and push it on to the point just to make sure there's a little bit of coverage there. You know, that's something, you know, not a lot of people do, but I like to, you know, fat, fat makes everything better and keeps it from drying out. And then, you know, we'll let that roll. I tend to smoke at a lower temperature than most. I'll cook at around 225. I know a lot of barbecue guys will push it to 275 and up, uh, you know, but I, you know, especially with that gas assist, I, the temperature control, I can let it roll and let them go for, you know, upwards of 14, 16 hours. Usually the last, you know, few hours, uh, we'll wrap them up and, you know, we'll, we'll bait them in a little bit of juice and stuff and just try to keep them moist and then make it, you know, so they don't, don't completely dry out and overcook. Butcher, are you wrapping them in butcher paper? I, no. Well, yes and no. It's not butcher paper. Um, because I already have a bunch of parchment and foil here, I don't like to have an extra product I don't need. So I'll wrap um, and two sheets of parchment on top and bottom and then in foil around that because 
One thing I try to really impress on people is don't let foil touch your food. Foil is aluminum, um, obviously, and it reacts very strongly with anything acidic. So if you have any like cider vinegar or tomato paste or mustard or anything in your product and your food, it's going to start pitting it and then give it like a, a metallic taste. And honestly, yeah, plus the, whatever chemical reactions are happening, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to start saying you're going to get, you know, get poisoned or get cancer or anything like that because of it. But, you know, it, it's still something, you know, let, let paper touch your food. And that's a, not even just barbecue. Just yeah, it's always a good habit to have. Don't let foil's great because it insulates, uh, but it's uh, it, you know it also tears and you know so I do the paper first and then the foil. Mm-hmm. And what about what temperature are you cooking chicken at? Well, so at the restaurant again, it's a lot easier since I usually have briskets ready rolling. Um, I'll, I'll keep everything at two twenty five. If you know I, again low and slow, and you know that's something I really pride on having is you know we've we've been voted a few times like the best uh, smoked chicken in the, in the city, um, like from a couple you know publications and uh, TV shows have uh, really highlighted our chicken. So I'm very proud of our our smoked chicken. So yeah, I do it at 225. I bring them right up two and a half hours, you know, cut in half, um, let them roll. And I, I, one thing in particular for me is I don't put any sugar at all in my chicken. Uh, which is again not normal for our barbecue. Everyone loves to put sugar and sugar and sugar. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, I really want the meat to stand out and you know let the meat shine. And that's the same with my ribs and my brisket and other stuff. I really, I don't like covering it up because you can cover up mistakes with sauce. But I want to prove that no, this is, stands out on its own. Yeah, I like our chicken. I eat a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give a, a shout out to my boss, Maureen Porter, who lives in Chicago. I'm going to tell her to go uh, go to Mills Barbecue. Bob, yeah, absolutely. Bob, let me ask you, you wrote a couple of books. You're an author. You, you wrote two books. Yep. So can you tell us about them? Okay, well, I was a journalist. I worked for a newspaper in Pennsylvania for 41 years as a sports editor. The first book, at some point in the back in the 80s, I started writing down things that Jewish athletes had done, like, you know, like uh, winning boxing titles, winning tennis tournaments, and really, you know, scoring a touchdown in a football game, just all kinds of all things. I wanted to put together a list of to show that there's a lot of Jewish athletes. They're not just, you know, Sandy Koufax, Hank Greenberg, and uh, Mark Spitz. So I wasn't quite sure what format to do it. And so I, finally I, I decided i do a calendar type of book. If you open up the book to July 21st, it's going to tell you all the significant things that happened on this date in Jewish sports history. I shopped it around. I'm surprised I got a uh, reply right away from Katab Publishing in New Jersey. So Day by Day in Jewish Sports History came out in 2007. And right about that time, uh, actually, this had already happened. Uh, Jewish Major Leaguers was a nonprofit group in Boston, which decided to publish a set of baseball cards for every Jewish player that was known at that time. There were 145 at the time. A lot of them never appeared on the baseball card, so they put out a commemorative set. I got in touch with the uh, Martin Abramowitz, who was the head of the organization, and offered to help out with future sets, uh, writing the text. So I got involved through that. And in 2014, they came out with their, their final update set. They were updating the new players every year and doing historical texts. So in 2008 was based on my book. So in 2014, they decided they had done it. They told the Jewish baseball story through cards. And Martin called me and wanted to know if I wanted to do a book showing the actual cards that, came out while the players were active as players. And I had just retired. I was looking for something to do, so I jumped at the chance. So in 2017, the Jewish baseball card book came out. And that's how I met Jeff Ader. Jeff, he was a collector of baseball cards and 
I had a huge collection of Jewish sports cards. Somehow he got in touch with Martin Abramowitz, and I guess he was talking about starting a baseball museum and wasn't quite sure what he had in his collection and wanted somebody to evaluate it. So he get, Jeff got in touch with me. Jeff flew me into Chicago. I gave two talks at his, at his restaurant and evaluated his collection and told him what he was missing and what he had. Jeff's just fanatic about this, uh, about Jewish baseball. And we hit it off right away. And he actually helped finance the publication of the book. So uh, he used as much to, to do with, he didn't have any, any really writing responsibilities, but he had a lot to do with us getting it out in, in publication. So the Great. Jewish baseball card book, is it, I, there's been a lot of biographies of Jewish players over the years, usually the top 20 or 30 players. Mm-hmm. This is the first one that, it goes chronologically. The rest were all alphabetical. So it kind of shows you who was playing at the same time other players were playing. And as I mentioned before, it also shows the development of baseball cards through, all the way back from the tobacco cards of, of Barney Pelty, the pitcher in 1911, all the way up to current day. So it's a, it's a, it's a coffee table type book. It's, it's really, really a nice looking book. Great. And if yeah. anybody wanted to pick, pick it up, it's available. Amazon's, yeah. Of course. We don't get any money for it, but it's it's the best place. <laughs> yeah, I saw I saw it on Amazon, and it looks really nice, really, really nice book. If you yeah, guys better. make it up, if you guys make it up to Melts, we got a few copies if you want. Yeah, okay, yeah. You know, Bob, let me ask you about. Uh, I see one of, one of the collections. I guess Jeff has this in his collections is the uh, Adam Greenberg batting helmet for the uh, Bridgeport Bluefish. His story: He came up to bat. He got beamed. What, you know, I guess he came. He was with the um, was it the Cubs at the time? I think it was with the Cubs. Cubs. With the Cubs. Based in the, uh, I think the Marlins or somebody, and uh, got being his first at bat, suffered a concussion, was out of baseball for a few years. Right. On his way back to the minors for seven, eight years, and everybody was trying to get him one more at bat. So right, there was uh, a campaign. Yeah. Marlins actually signed him for a one-day contract. And he got one at bat. Unfortunately, it was against the Mets and uh, Dickey, who was a yeah, Ari Dickey award winner that year, struck yeah. him out with bitches. Three pitches, three knuckleballs. At least he got. Oh, his one that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, he's, he was happy. He got his one major league at bat. He was, he didn't. He was like a moonlight Graham before that happened. Yeah, it, uh, you know, it was glad they got it back. But what what a way to uh, have yeah. a career. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the first pitch of his career too. It yeah, was. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, he went on to the Bridgeport Bluefish, and I see what, what the, his batting helmet. I guess Jeff has this in his collection from the online museum. Yeah, Jeff also has a, I don't know if it's been cataloged, maybe Bob, you know, but Jeff also has a couple hundred bobbleheads, which yeah, we absolutely. used to have on display. There's a ridiculous uh-huh. amount. Everyone's got yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, Jeff's stuff. I know he's purchased at least three large collections of memorabilia and cards from people. I've been doing it slowly. I've been collecting since 1989. He's, he he uh, does it differently, but it's it's he's got an amazing collection. Though. He's got a whole I – th- I think the top floor of his house is all full of bats and articles. And oh, wow. Jerseys and all kinds of you know, gloves, catcher's mitts. Catcher's yeah, I'm, I gotta, I'm adding that to the bucket list to see his house because <laughs> they go there. His, his house sounds like Foley's we had here in New York. And unfortunately, it was a, another victim of the pandemic, but Foley's owned by Sean Clancy. Right, Jeff? The baseball bar. It had yeah. thousands of bobbleheads, old memorabilia, jerseys, things like that, all over the wall. It was a, 
you know, ball players, reporters, they all went there. And yeah, due to the pandemic, they had to uh, shut down, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah. Was... Also, also on the baseball, on the baseball, Jewish baseball side is the, you have a, a section for trivia. I love trivia. Right. Yeah. So uh, I, I actually had a trivia section in the back of my first book too, the day by day in Jewish sports history. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I don't remember who did the trivia for the website. It, there were a couple of uh, people who worked on it when we first started. And I did, I did a lot of the uh, player bios. Uh-huh. but Somebody else did the, the uh, trivia. Right. Now, Brian, did we touch on why it's called Milt's Barbecue? I got that, but for the perplex. <laughs> Uh, we did not, but I'd be happy to tell you. Oh, please. Yeah, please. Uh, well, also, for the first part, Milt is uh, Jeff's uncle uh, who passed away before we opened the restaurant. So I, apparently, he never had any kids and never got married and was just that crazy uncle who would love to you know, take the kids out you know, and drinking and have them go play poker, you know, and making all bad choices. So Jeff had a, you know, a very fond uh, uh, you know, recollections and memories of him, so he wanted to honor him. The barbecue for the perplexed part is a riff off of a uh, famous uh, Jewish scholar named uh, Maimonides, who had a, a, a book called The Guide for the Perplexed. So it was just a play on those words, really. And so we actually kind of take it, we, we took that perplexity idea, and we built, we have a bunch of trivia cards and a bunch of uh, magnets and stuff with, you know, just random questions and quote-unquote perplexities. And so, we you know, it, it engages the customers and gets people involved a little bit. Speaking of trivia, uh, when they did open the uh, store, the uh, the restaurant next door for a while, they put. I, I actually wrote the uh, about fifty different car- trivia cards, which they had out on the on the uh, tables for while people were eating, and they all all based on Jewish baseball. So I'm not sure where those are now. With the oh, uh, you want some? I, I have them all. <laughs> I've got a bunch. Of them. We got a bunch. <laughs> I saw on the website there were there were questions. That, that I was, as I was getting ready for this interview, I was reading to my family and one was like, why is abbreviated such a long word? <laughs> that was good. Another was why at the, uh, the ATM drive up, uh, the, uh, the, the brails, the, the braille, right. uh, if, if you travel at the speed of light, what happens when you turn your headlights on? <laughs> yeah. my, my favorite one's why didn't Noah swat the mosquitoes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I read in the, I saw you've been written up in the Times of Israel, has a nice article on you, and uh, you donate a part of your preference charity. Tell us about that. Well, so, well, actually, at this point, while Jeff was uh, ownership, the, it was all the profits, and, and then some. I mean, Jeff is a very charitable guy, and we gave a lot of money to a lot of different charities. Each month, we have community gift program, and we choose a local charity that either we try to mix it up. Some are Jewish, some are, most are not Jewish at all. You know, we live in a predominantly um, LGBT friendly area. And so we try to make sure we incorporate them into our, uh, into our mission. And, you know, we, we want to, you know, we're in a financial position to help. We want to make sure we give back. I think that is important. And, you know, Jeff is very honorable in that sense. And then when he sold us the restaurant a few months ago, obviously, right. But yeah, if you ever want investment advice, let Jeff give you the investment advice because he sold it at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the idea is that, you know, the, the, he sold it all to all the staff, uh, me and a few others. And so we get, you know, ownerships, we have some profit sharing. And part of the agreement was that we would obviously, you know, give back, you know, a certain amount, um, which we're, again, we're, you know, things are all up in the air right now. But we're, we're, we're definitely committed to making sure we still give a, a sizable donation each month, you know, various charities. 
Well, while we're operating at 20% capacity, obviously there isn't a whole lot of profits to go around. So um, when we get get through it onto the, onto the other side, then uh, we'll uh, resume those uh, donations and stuff. When, when they had the, uh, the restaurant next door, I believe all the employees had some kind of learning disabilities or something. Yeah, yeah so... <laughs> Yeah, Jeff, so Jeff's niece is was a, she's a graduate of a program through Keshet called Gadol, which is for developmentally young adults who have had developmental difficulties and would have a hard time maintaining normal you know job prospects. And so it's a special program to keep them employed. And, and they have job coaches; they have, they're on one to one. And so we've always had employees here at Mills to help do things like roll the silverware, fill the sauce containers, you know, somewhat basic tasks. But then when we had the idea of opening up this new place, we just we wanted to staff it completely with uh, Gadol employees. And so we, I think at one point, had about uh, 10 different people through the program who we were able to staff and give them full-time jobs, relatively full-time jobs. And it was great. It was, you know, while it lasted, it was, uh, it was, it was very, I was very proud to be part of it. And, you know, that plus the baseball and, and the food, you know, it, it kind of hit every little soft spot of me. <laughs> That sounds just just terrific. You know, that, that's great. Yeah. Guys, we, we appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day. Why don't you tell us how uh, people can get in touch with you? I know you you, you restaurants in Chicago. Do you have websites, uh, Twitter? You know, please go ahead. Tell us how do, uh, people want to get in touch with you. Okay. Well, so our website is miltsbbq.com. We're in Lakeview at 3411 North Broadway, uh, about a mile from Wrigley Field. And so we tend to get a lot of traffic around game days, which obviously is not happening this year. Um, yeah, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we don't do a whole lot on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, that's 100% my fault. But yeah, um, come join us. Yeah, I'll be here. Say hi. You know, I love to talk, talk baseball, barbecue, whatever. You know, Come on, say hi. Yeah, and JewishBaseballMuseum.com. You can uh, send an email through there. I'll, I'll check it every night. I'm on Twitter, and the Jewish Baseball Museum is also on Twitter now. I just started that. It's not, not so bad. I thought it was going to be terrible. But we're getting some followers there. But I'm the, I guess the best way to get in touch with us is through the website, JewishBaseballMuseum.com. Jeff, they are the perfect guests. You know, mm-hmm. we have – they really are because, first of all, I, I, I know we're going to end this interview, okay, regretfully because I'm having a lot of fun with you guys. I, and I'm hungry. I really, I so wish I had a way of just going right now to your restaurant. You both are, are terrific. And we love talking baseball and barbecue. Sometimes we have guests where we do both, but you guys are just so perfect. So I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you guys coming on with us. So thank you. Very much. Yeah, no, thanks for having likewise. Thank you. Okay. Thank, thank you very much. All right. Take care. Now that's a bonus. Back to bonus, baby. <laughs> wow. We talked about a lot of stuff. They, I love, absolutely love the, the, the part when we talked about the, what they have at the, at the restaurant. The, why does a drive-up ATM have Braille? <laughs> that, that was really good. What, why is abbreviated such a long word? Was right. <laughs> There was great stuff there. And again, yes, there was definitely stuff that we talked about that, you know, happened during the baseball season, during the pandemic, but it was very little. And you know what? We've got a lot of content we want to get out. And so we were a little late getting this out, but it was well worth it. Absolutely. And if you're in the Chicago area, 
Check out Milk's Barbecue for the Perplexed. It's at 3411 North Broadway Street in Chicago. It's near Wrigley Field. So if, you have, if you happen to be in Chicago, check it out. You know who uh, would enjoy that, of course, is our friend of the show is Doug Shiding, big Cubs fan. Yeah. Right? If he's in Chicago. And you know who is in Chicago? Meathead. Meathead. But also my boss. She's in Chicago. So Maureen, if you're listening, go to Milt's Barbecue for the Perplexed. Right. <laughs> and pick up some... Pick up some of those ribs for Jeff. He yes. He would appreciate that. <laughs> oh, wow. So, again, Jeff, bonus episode 77. Big, big hit. I think, uh, I, I really think everyone's going to really like it. But you know what? Whether it's a bonus episode or not a bonus episode, we still have to end with something that, is near and dear to our heart. Baseball always brings you home with our friends, the poet, the musician, Shel Krakowski, Dave Dresser. Thanks, guys. See you in episode 78. Bye.